Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Somebody told me a couple weeks ago, it's so nice to come to a church where they say, turn in your Bibles or open your Bibles too. Uh, I don't know what's going on out there in other churches, but it seems that uh, not a lot of Bible teaching is going on. So, But we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. And to be honest with you, I looked at these, this passage. You can kind of look at Matthew 24 and 25 as a group, as a, as a section it's, um, we know it as the Olivet Discourse. It's when Jesus left the temple area where he was gathered with the religious leaders. We've been tracking that for several weeks now. And he left with his disciples and he went up to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives you can actually see the city, you can see the Temple Mount. And in their time you could see the, the dome of the temple as it was plated with gold. And... Uh, This is a sermon, a discourse, you might call it, that is given by the Lord himself to the disciples. They're away from the crowds, they're by themselves, and he's giving it to them, the first two verses as they walk up to the Mount of Olives, and then at the Mount of Olives, he, from verse 3 on, he goes into a discourse and answers the question that they are asking him, when is all this going to take place? Um, The theme of this sermon, or this discourse, is the second coming of Christ. So he's talking about himself coming back. Uh, It's a discourse about the Lord, his coming, and really the end of the present age as we know it, and the beginning of the established kingdom and all that. And all that is covered in the next two chapters. And if you have some time, I'd encourage you to read through it. Read ahead, because it's just a lot to uh, dissolve, a lot to digest uh, in one reading. And so I I encourage you to spend some time here in the coming weeks in these two chapters of Matthew. Read them over and over and over again, and just hide that in your heart and ponder what he's saying. Remember, this is the Lord speaking. This isn't some third party talking about what's going to happen. This is the Lord. A lot of times when we think of Bible prophecy, we think of Isaiah, we think of Ezekiel, we think of Zechariah and Daniel, all the the Old Testament books that talk about Bible prophecy. The book of Revelation. Uh, Remember one time when we had David Hawking here one year, he taught through the entire book of Revelation in one weekend. Remember that? That was just amazing. But all that has to do with end times. And if there's something that kind of perks people's ears up, it's when you start talking about the end of the age, the end of the world. Uh, it perks people's ears. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're one of the people that are into global warming and all that. Boy, it's all going to end and we've got to prevent this. All right? The collapse of the world as we know it and the environment. Uh, or you could be looking at it and... and uh, looking at some of the headlines of people talking about the Mayan calendar and, what is it, December 2012, you know, it's the end and all this stuff. We have someone local here, Bible teacher, Harold Camping, who several times had predicted when Christ was going to return, and each time he's obviously fallen short in his predictions and really made a mockery of the whole process. But the Bible has a lot to say about the coming of Christ. A tremendous amount. And somehow I think when people study it, they overlook these two passages in Matthew 
chapter 24 and 25. I mean, to be honest with you, even as I've been studying over the past weeks and looking kind of ahead to this section, uh, one of the, the men, the elders, asked me, you know, hey, are we going to be at the Passion Week in Matthew when it's Passion Week this year? <laughs> are we going to be there in time for Easter? And at first I said, oh, yeah. It's got a couple chapters. <laughs> no problem. You know, we only got, you know, until 28, so we only got four chapters left. I'm sure I can cut. And I started reading this stuff, and I'm thinking, whoa, there's a lot in here. And so I kind of made the decision to, hey, if it works out, it works out. I don't think it's going to work out, so maybe it'll be next Easter, but who knows? Uh, but th- the point is simply this, is that there's, there's a lot of unknown and speculation. There's a lot of people that teach different things. You can read different commentaries. Every commentary in my library almost says a different thing about these passages. It's just amazing. And it's, a, it's kind of like a minefield you're trying to go through. And it's, it's the Lord's own teaching about his return in glory to establish his kingdom. And that's what he is speaking about here in these uh, two chapters. Um, there's a lot of misunderstood theology when you come to these two chapters. People take things, they rip them out of context, and they say, oh, okay. I guess the, you know, he was talking to the disciples about you know, the, the, the rapture. He was talking to them about this. He was, no, they didn't even, they, do you understand? They didn't even understand the church. The church wasn't there yet. And so it's very important that we understand from the uh, disciples' perspective, because you can really get, kind of weighed down in all the, the, the theology that's in these two chapters concerning the end times. But if you look at it simply, you just I want you to kind of focus and put yourself in the disciple's shoes. Okay, you're a simple fisherman. You're following Christ. You've just seen him just tear apart the religious leaders, limb by limb almost, with his words. In chapter 23, he pronounced words of judgment upon Israel, upon the religious leaders. He cleaned out the temple. He went and he taught in the temple. This is still Wednesday. It's late in the day, but it's still Wednesday. And he had just shut down the religious leaders. The end of chapter three and he, or chapter 23, and he pronounced judgment on them. But Everybody is curious about the future. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to know the future? Wouldn't it be nice to know somehow what stock's going to go up and what stock's going to go down? Mario, you, you would like that, right? I mean, you would, that would be good. If you could somehow know in advance what was going to happen. And for one reason or another, we all want to see a glimpse into the future. That's why there's, there's so many things that, that people do that, are, that take advantage of people's interest into those things. You have, you know, people who are in false religions, they make predictions, they make all kinds of things. You have certain prophets and people that kind of just foretell what's going to happen in their own mind. Futurists, mediums, fortune tellers, all that. They're all trying to get a grip on what's going to take place in the future. And whether it's the Mayan calendar or Harold Camping's claims, or just a simple look at Bible prophecy. We would all like to know when when things are going to happen. And so we're going to start this series, Discerning the Times, 
and this is part one, and, and it's just basically meant to lay a foundation. Because if you don't put yourself in the mind of the disciples, at this point, at this time in the book of Matthew, if you don't stop and think, okay, what would they be thinking right now? If you don't think that way, you're going to have a real hard time understanding where we're going. I'm just telling you that right up front. The Jews were no different in the time of Christ. They wanted to know what's happening. They wanted to know the future. Uh, They wanted, and they had their own reasons for that. I mean, stop and think, if you were a Jew in the time of Christ, what what were you under? You've, You've been under oppression. You've been under bondage. Now the Roman government is over you. I mean, the whole Jewish line of people have been oppressed. And they're not the kind of people to be oppressed. They're very independent people, if you know anybody that's Jewish. They're, they're very uh, well kind of thought out. They, 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 they want to take responsibility for themselves. They're not the kind of people that would be subjects of another kingdom or another nation. And yet that's exactly where they find themselves over and over and over again. They'd gone through the Persian rule. They went through the Greek rule. Now they're dealing with the Roman government and the oppression of all the Jews. And they had enough of it. They, they, were just, they just wanted some release. And so when it comes to their understanding of what we call in theology eschatology, which basically means, estos means the last thing, Ology, the study of, so it's the study of the last things of the latter times, eschatology. I want you to kind of understand where the Jewish mind was, where the disciples' mind was. Because what did they have? They had the Old Testament. That's all they had. And the Old Testament says a lot about the coming of the Lord. It truly does. But it also, it's kind of like the Old Testament here, the New Testament is here, and they were looking from you know, mountain top to mountain top, mountain peak to mountain peak. They didn't see the valley of the church. They didn't understand the church age at all. They had no idea about the church age. So when Christ spoke above his coming, they thought, hey, it's all in one big time frame. They just put all the prophecies and they combined it all right into the time of Christ. And it's important that you understand that kind of a, a mindset. So, to start off, I just want us, before we even get into the text, I want you to understand a little bit about the Jewish eschatology. What did they think in their their mind? What were they formulating in their mind as far as the end times? How does it play out in the mind of a Jew back even in the time of Christ? Uh, They longed for this time, this time when righteousness and peace would, would prevail. They... They longed for a time when Jerusalem dwelled in prosperity and safety. And they remember the times when Isaiah would prophesy certain things about that. And they longed for the time when they would be restored as a nation. And so by the time you get to the life of Christ in the history of the Jewish people, I mean, they have a certain view of end times. They have a certain view of eschatology. And they got that view from the Old Testament. It's not a wrong view, but it, it needed to be tweaked because they totally overlooked the church age. They didn't understand anything about that. And you can 
do a lot of research, if, if you're that kind of a person, on some of the non-biblical writings back in that time in society from a Jewish point of view. And there's basically six things that you can conclude and uh, in, a, in a book uh, written by Schur, The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I don't know where he even is on his eschatology. But he basically tells us how a Jew thinks when it comes, when it came to the time of Christ as far as end times. And the first thing that in the Jewish mind, when you looked at the end times, here's kind of the, the way it would work out. Here's the, the, uh, the schedule of events, you might say. First of all, they believed that there would, become, there would come a time of tribulation. And it was going to be a time of difficulty, a time of trouble. And we can look in the Old Testament and we can see where the prophets, and we're not going to do that because we don't have the time, but where the prophets foretell a time of tribulation, a time of difficulty, a time of trouble. And in their mind, what are they thinking? Yeah, we've been through it. We've dealt with the Assyrians. We've dealt with the, the, the Persians. You know, we, we were going to the Greeks and now the Romans. Man, we, we've been feeling this oppression. We've been feeling this tribulation. We understand that, man, I wish this Messiah would come because this is going to come before. They believed there would come a time of tribulation, a time of difficulty. Secondly, they believed that there would come a herald, a, a prophet, one who would come before the Messiah and he would have the role of announcing the Messiah. That's what they believed. And they get that from the Old Testament scriptures. It says that. And so think about it. In the disciples' mind, who came before Christ? John the Baptist. And what did they say about John the Baptist? Oh, he must, you know, he's, he's, he's like one of these prophets. He's one of the ones that was supposed to come. And so in their mind, they're, they're checking these things off. Okay, time of tribulation, we've been through that. We've done that. The herald, the guy that's going to come to announce the coming Messiah, well, that's done. That was John the Baptist. And then they believed that there would come the Messiah. Here they are in the presence of Christ. Christ is doing all these miracles. He's healing people. He's, I mean, basically wiped out any kind of illness in the whole area there during his three years of ministry. That's what he did. He went around and healed people. And the Jews saw that. Remember, the Jews didn't argue the fact that Jesus did miracles. They just said what? The non-believing, the ones that didn't want to follow Christ, they said, oh, he does those, but he does them by the who? The power of Satan, not the power of God. So they weren't even arguing the fact that Christ was doing some incredible things. So they, they believed there'd be a time of tribulation, there'd be a forerunner to the Messiah, then there would be the Messiah himself and he would come. And then it, basically they believed this, when the Messiah came, all the nations on the earth would gather to fight against him, and that's when he would devastate and destroy them. That's what they believed. So they're looking at the tribulation they've been having with Rome and all the other countries that are against them. Check that off. The herald, the John the Baptist, they check that off. The Messiah, well, this guy is the Messiah. The disciples had no problem understanding that. They check that off. And so they're waiting. Do you understand in the mind of the disciples, that's why... When Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem, 
Remember, the disciples were like, yeah, this is it. And what did he do? He went to the temple and he cleansed out the temple and then he went home. And they're like, well, wait a minute. You know, why isn't he going over and, you know, overruling the Romans and taking down their fort and overrunning the army? They didn't understand that because that's what they were looking for in a Messiah. Because that's what they're, from their prophetic viewpoint, they put all that into kind of one basket. And so they're waiting for him to devastate the Roman Empire. They're waiting for him to overrun the oppressors. And then they also believe, fifthly, that he would purify the city of Jerusalem. And so in their mind, they're probably looking at the temple cleansing as, that's kind of purifying. He's getting rid of all these people that take advantage of us, all these money changers, all these people that have gone in there and kind of turned the tables on us and cause us to pay more for offerings and do all this stuff. He went in and he cleansed them all out. And then they believed finally that the Messiah would gather the Jews from all over the earth and he would establish his eternal kingdom. Now, are all those things going to happen? Yes. That's in biblical prophecy in the Old Testament. You can see it over and over and over again. You dovetail it with Revelation. You see these things happening. Have they happened yet? No. But in the disciples' mind, they're living in the moment. Because they didn't see this time of the church age. They didn't see the birth of Christ. 33 years, he dies, he's resurrected, he goes to heaven, and then he comes back. After a period, they didn't see that. They saw it all at once. That was the in the mind of the Jew when they thought of last times, when they thought of eschatology. The Jews did not understand the church age at all. They've been under this tribulation a long time. They're Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they're sick of it. And they look for the, the, the Roman oppression as this time of tribulation. It's the end of the road. They were tired of it. That's even aside from all the other things that they had gone through. And they thought probably, hey, we're in this tribulation right now. We're feeling it right now. So let's, let's turn this thing around. John the Baptist came. They thought he was Elijah at one point. And then Jesus Christ comes. He raises the dead. He does all these things. He works all these miracles. And then he comes riding into Jerusalem at the Passover. And they're thinking, this is it. People are throwing down palm branches. People are lining the streets. And what are they saying? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is it. This is the Messiah. The first thing that's going to happen is the nations of the earth are going to gather against him and he's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy the oppressors. And they're waiting for this to start. That's that's the kind of anticipation that's building in their hearts. He's going to throw out all these hypocrites, this false religion, these false teachers. He's going to overthrow it. Okay, yeah, he cleansed the temple, but you know what? He's probably going to build a new one. That's what Ezekiel says. They understood that. Then he's going to gather all the Jews, all of us from all over the world, and he's going to establish his eternal kingdom. And you know what? We're on the inside. We're here with the Messiah right now. What a wonderful thing. Now, that's what's in the head of the disciples as we start chapter 24. That's where they're at. That's the kind of thinking that's going on in their mind. 
It's kind of unfolding very clearly for them, the whole scenario. There's only one problem. What does Jesus do? Previously, even, when Jesus would mention certain things, he'd always say, but, you know, i got to go and i got to die. Right? He told them that. Time and time again, he told them that. What about when Jesus told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed? He was going to be crucified. He just got done telling them, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. And you stop and you say, well, what did they miss in that message? It just went right over their heads. It went right over their heads. They didn't even hear the, the, the dying part. Because it didn't fit in their eschatology. It's not part of their scenario, the way they thought it was going to play out. And so what do they say? Over and over again, they just say, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you, hear, you see the disciples telling Christ. Remember Peter? Oh, that's never going to happen. And what's Jesus have to say? Get me behind me what? Satan. See, they didn't comprehend that. They totally overlooked the church age. It wasn't even in their game plan. So they thought all this stuff was going to happen immediately. They didn't comprehend the death of Christ, and they don't even apprehend the resurrection of Christ. They only see the coming glory. They only see the kingdom. They have a very kind of pushed-together view of his coming. And they see it all happening when he first when he comes the first time. I mean, he came once, he was born, right? Well, now we got, what? Now we know, because we have the New Testament, that we have, you know, years of time in there. The church age, we call it. They didn't see that. The Old Testament prophets didn't even see that. They didn't even talk about it. It wasn't even on their radar screen. They just saw Christ coming and the whole thing happening at once. They didn't see the element of time in the church age in between his first and second coming. See, that's why whenever it's referred to in the New Testament, what's it referred to as? It's referred to as the what? The mystery. The church age is referred to as a mystery in the New Testament. Paul calls the whole New Testament a mystery. Why? It's revealed, yeah, but it wasn't revealed to them. It wasn't revealed to the Old Testament prophets. This whole New Testament thing, that's like a brand new thing. That's like, well, where did this come from? This is dropped out of heaven. We had no idea this would happen. And that's why Paul refers to it as a mystery over and over again. A mystery is something that is hidden from ages past. And because it unfolds a time period that wasn't seen previously, that which was hidden... Even the Old Testament prophets, they probably saw this all happening at one time. And that's the way the disciples saw it. So you know what? They're they're, they're wringing their hands. They're thinking, man, everything's lining up. It's all on schedule. Our eschatology was right on target. We know what's going to happen next. When's it going to happen, Lord? We've gone through the tribulation. We're sick of that. We want you to turn this table around. Let's go. Let's get with it. That's why they seem kind of impatient with Jesus at times. 
We've seen the Elijah come. That's John the Baptist. And here's Christ. No just stipulating that. He's right here. He's with us. We're part of his crew. And he's coming into the city. And he accepts our praise and our hallelujahs and our triumphal praises. He's going to purify the temple. He's going to gather all of us Jews and establish his kingdom. It's right on track. Just the way we thought it would happen. John MacArthur brings up a good point. He says that, he makes a comment and he says, you know what, that's why Judas hung in there. That's why Judas was part of this whole thing. Judas wasn't a believer in Christ. Clearly wasn't. But he hung around. And when he heard this sermon begin in Matthew 24 and 25, man, Judas probably went, yeah, baby, here it comes. I'm on the inside crew. Nobody even knows. And I'm part of, I'm going to be part of this big kingdom. I mean, what was he motivated by? Greed, right? That was what was in his heart. Self-desire. But in his heart, he thought, man, this is it. It's it's all going to happen now, and I can't wait. That's why when you get to chapter 26, when you get to chapter 26 and you read through chapter 26, as soon as Jesus finishes the sermon about the glory and the second kingdom and how this is going to know, you're going to know certain signs are going to take place. He finishes all those things. And then he says this to his disciples. He says, you know, after two days is the feast of the Passover. Remember, this is Wednesday. And let me tell you this. Here's what he says. The Son of Man is going to be what? Betrayed and crucified. At that point, that's, that's, that's the last straw for Judas. That's it. Can't handle anymore. He's been on this roller coaster up and down, up and down. He doesn't understand it. I mean, he's thinking of all this grandeur, of all the power and all the wealth that's going to go along with the second coming. I mean, he's going to rule everybody. That's what they believed. And he's part of this crew. And yet Christ stands up and says, no, I've got to die in two days. Sorry. What's Judas's reaction? Immediately he runs out and he begins to betray Christ. Immediately. You know what? If this isn't going to happen, then I need to get whatever I can and get out of here. 30 pieces of silver. It sounds good to me. Here, give me the money. (laughs) Kiss him on the cheek and he's gone. His hopes are literally smashed for the last time. He can't take it anymore. And he runs out and he betrays Christ. But up until that time, there's sort of this hanging on Because he's filled with this anticipation. That happens in chapter 26. We're not even there yet. But here in 24, this Olivet Discourse, as it's called, when he begins to talk about the end times, I mean, that must have really cranked up their anticipation of this whole thing. Now, you have to put this in focus. And to do that, I want you to look back at chapter 23. (laughs) chapter 23. You have to bring it into the focus 
of verses 38 and 39 of chapter 23. Remember, Jesus had just spent the whole day, literally the whole day in the temple. He's talking with the religious leaders. He's having a dialogue back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he says, that's it. I'm cutting you off. And basically, he pronounced judgment on them. And we've looked at that. He answered their questions, and then he condemns them. And he gave them condemning parables even before that. And so he's just been through this confrontation with these religious leaders. It's ended. And he pronounces the end basically in verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you what? Desolate. That's a judgment. He's telling them. Basically, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. And then he says in verse 39, I tell, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, Judgment is coming to you. And you're not going to see me again until I come in the name of the Lord. And that's basically, the name of the Lord is a messianic title. When you see me again, I'm, I'm coming as the Messiah. I'm coming as a judge, not as a savior. And that's exactly what they hailed Jesus when he entered the when he went entered Jerusalem there on that Monday when he rode in. Everybody's thinking, "Hey, this is it! This is it!" That's why they were so excited. See, and then when things didn't play out the way they thought it, well, then they hey, crucify him, get rid of this guy. He's a wacko. He didn't line up with our beliefs. So when they hear him say that he's going to, these things are going to happen, notice that he, this is interesting, in verse 38, he says, see your house. Whose house was it before? When Christ referred to it before, whenever he referred to the temple, he referred to it as what? My house? My father's house? See how he's cutting them off? He's saying, no, no. It's not my house. It's not even my father's house anymore. Pals, this is your house. You own it. This whole mess, you own it. It's as if God, he's saying, you know what, Ichabod, the glory has departed, that's it. Game over. That's what he's telling him in so many words. He's saying, it's done with. I mean, that's got to be a hard thing for them to comprehend. I mean, this is their whole point of their religion, you might say. The temple and everything that's in it. And yet he pronounced this judgment, this final judgment on the nation Israel. Now, in the thinking of the disciples, look over at verse 3 of chapter 24. Because they ask Christ a question. They finally get to the Mount of Olives. We'll go through verses 1 and 2, but I just want to point this out. They get to the Mount of Olives, the top, you know, you get to the top of that thing, it's a hill. It's, a, it's up on a, you've got to rest a little bit. And they came, and they came to him privately. Nobody's around. And look at what they ask him. They say, tell us, when will these things be? When will these things be? What's going to be the sign of this coming? What's going to be the sign of the end of the age? Now remember, they're thinking it's going to happen 
any day. That's basically what they say there. And they say, tell us when. See that word when? They're not thinking, oh, thousands of years from now. No, they're thinking, is it going to be today, tomorrow? Is it going to be next, next Wednesday? When is it? I mean, they're, they're counting the hours, not the years. In their mind. And they want to know what, what's going to indicate this is going to happen. We've come to the end of the age. And that's what's running through their minds at this point. He says their house, your house, will be left desolate. It will be abandoned. It would be like it never even existed. That's exactly what he's telling them. Well, let's look at the first two verses of Matthew 24. Because this is where the disciples' minds are. Hopefully you understand that. And now when we read this, hopefully you can put that through that filter and get a little feeling of what they may be feeling. So at this point, the beginning of Matthew 24, they're still in the temple. It says Jesus left the temple, so they're in the process of walking out of the grounds there. And he was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. You have to understand a little bit about the temple. You have to understand a little bit about this is not a little building. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is massive. I mean, when we were over there, we went up to the Temple Mount. Obviously, the temple's not there. They have a big mosque there now. But you can go through and you can put together the size of this temple. Huge. Massive. I mean, the stones alone, some of the stones alone were 12 by 12 by 40 feet. Some of them were as long as 85 feet on the temple itself. There's some over there in that area, there's still some stones that are pretty much that size, hundreds of tons. I mean, you're talking the size of a Navy ship. How they got them arranged the way they did, who knows? I mean, how they built the pyramids, you know, I, I don't know. But they did. This isn't fantasy. This is something that really happened. And so they're saying here, they're walking out of there and they're looking at these massive stones and these, these massive buildings. And these guys are simple fishermen. They didn't spend a lot of time in the temple. I mean, they were familiar with it and stuff. But it's impressive now if you go over in that area and the temple's not even there. Just the temple mount. But to think that this, this thing is huge, it's like a fort, fortress. And inside the fortress, there's several buildings, the temple, and then there's other buildings that they use for different things. So they're kind of meandering their way, and they're leaving, and the disciples are looking around going, man, check this out. This is incredible. Look at this. Do you believe this? And they're trying to understand how this is going to happen. How is this house going to be left desolate? How is this going to work out? I mean, look at the size of these rocks. Look at the size of these, these, these quarried stones. Amazing. And he just said that, you know what? The glory is going to depart and it's going to become desolate. And in their minds, they're going, you know what? We don't get this at all. 
And they're trying to figure out exactly how this is going to work. And Jesus knows what's in their heart. He knows. He knows what they're going through. He, he knows what we go through every day. That's the neat thing about the Lord. He, he knows what's in the heart of man. He doesn't have to ask us a question. He already knows. So you see in verse 2, it says, but he answered them. Because they're going, how is this going to take place? And he's looking at these rocks, he's looking at these buildings and everything, and he, he points to them probably, and he says, you know what, you see all these buildings right here? You see all this stuff? See all this magnificent temple? Don't you see it? And they're going, yeah, we see it. And he says, truly I say to you, and look at what he says. There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they're probably going, what? I mean, we don't even know how they built this place, let alone tearing it down. I mean, you're not talking about little bricks. I mean, you're talking about massive stones that weigh hundreds and hundreds of tons. And somehow, this is all going to come down to the point where there's nothing left. There's not even one stone upon another. Your house is going to be left desolate. It's going to be ruined. Mark chapter 13, verse 3, it says, it mentions these buildings as great buildings. And even over in Luke chapter 21, verse 5, it says the buildings were adorned with offerings and they were very... Uh, the people would bring offerings and wealthy treasures and they'd put them all around. And, and uh, so it's a very wealthy place, just opulence. When you think of the temple, that's what it was. Gold everywhere. A little bit about this temple. It was built, ironically, not by a Jew. It was built by Herod. But he had a way with buildings, <laughs> He loved to build. And so he built them this temple, and it was just amazing. Like I said, the size of it was just off the chart. And the disciples are looking at this going, how is this going to be torn down? How is this going to be a desolate place? It's so busy, especially then. Remember, it's a Passover. Everybody's coming, all these people everywhere. And Jesus is telling them it's going to be desolate. It's going to be abandoned. And they're thinking, this isn't making sense. How can it ever happen? And before they even ask the question, he begins to answer. He begins to tell them. But in the other side of their mind, they're probably thinking, well, you know, Ezekiel does talk about a new temple. And Ezekiel, you know, this is a, a temple that was built by a Gentile. So maybe it's a good thing. But they're still having a hard time with all this. So Jesus looks around and their jaw just drops when they say it's not going to be a throne, a stone upon one another. It's going to be totally gone. And they don't understand how this is going to take place. Well, you know what? When Jesus says something, listen to this. When Jesus says something, you have to understand He's not a liar. When he says something, it's going to happen. Beloved, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
He says, I am the truth. You know, he's not going to lie to us. You say, well, I don't know, did this happen? I mean, I, did this really? yeah, it did happen. As a matter of fact, it did. Year 70 A.D., about 67, the Jews started a little rebellion against the, the Romans. And Caesar basically had had it. They it had these zealots going out and starting all these fires, and the Jews were just, or the Romans were just tired of putting out these fires with the Jews. And the Caesar basically at the time said, you know what, that's it, I'm done with these people. Game over. Game over. It's over. He brought up his one of his generals, Titus, and he said, you know what, I'm giving you the orders, you go to Jerusalem, kill everyone. Tear everything down. Totally desecrate the place. Because I know the only way to get rid of these Jews is to get rid of the religion. Take care of their temple. Get, get rid of it. I don't care what you need to do. Just do it. You have the, the resources of the whole Roman Empire behind you. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Josephus, who's a church historian, tells us that the Roman army went in there and they literally just devastated. Not just the temple area. The whole city was devastated. 70 AD. They not only tore down the temples, they tore down houses, tore down other buildings. Historians tell us there's probably about a million people living in Jerusalem proper at that time. 500,000 of them died in this slaughter. 500, that's half of them. Just dead. Not just the men. We're talking men, children, animals. They just wiped everything out. Priests, they didn't care who you were. And the other 500,000, basically they took captive and they sold into slavery. See, when Jesus says something is going to happen, beloved, you might want to perk up a little bit. I mean, stop and think about it. If this book was just a book of fairy tales or just a book somebody wrote, how could all these things be prophesied Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. And yet, to this day, nobody can say, oh yeah, see this one? This points out that it's true, false because it didn't happen. Jesus said this was going to happen and it didn't happen. No, everything Jesus prophesied, whether it's, hey, you know what? Uh, I know we're going into Jerusalem. I need to ride on something. Why don't you go over to that town and somebody will be there and you can get a colt and you bring them back and they'll give it to you. Just tell them who I am and how did he know that the cult was even there? How did he know it? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's God. As far as Caesar and Rome concerned, Israel did not exist any longer. Josephus tells us in one of his books that when this whole devastating process was over, a farmer could take his farmer's plow out on one side of Jerusalem and, use, and basically go from one side of Jerusalem to the other, turning up dirt. That's how much devastation. There's not even a stone, nothing left. Totally abandoned. But at this point, they're saying, okay, got you on the temple. You're not going to leave a stone upon another. This is probably part of the process in their mind. They're putting this whole thing together. They're squashing it all together. 
so they come up with a question in verse 3, and we're just going to touch on this. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives with the disciples, the disciples came to him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the, come, the end of the age? Well, you have to understand what things they're talking about. In their mind, the things that they're talking about go right back to verse 38 and 39. Okay, the house is going to be left desolate. Ichabod, the glory is going to depart. Everything's going to be torn down. The Messiah is going to come. They put all that together. Truly I say to you, all these, or he says there in verse 39, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're putting that together with the destruction of 70 AD. They're putting it all together at one time. And they're thinking, okay, is this going to happen this week or next? That's in their thinking. And so they're saying, well, are you going to tip us off? Are you going to give us a sign of these things? When would these things be? And they had this dilemma because that's what they, they understood all of this processed into one moment. Over in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, the disciples, and this was even before this event, it says, He added and spoke a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because, why? They thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. See, that's what was in their head. That was what was in their head. They had this dilemma. Everything was going to happen at that one point. So the anticipation's building. So you understand here in verse 20, in, in 24, verse 3, from this point on, the whole point of what Jesus is telling them is simply this. These are two distinct events. Don't put it all together. It's not going to happen immediately. And then he starts to give them some signals and some times when, when people see this happening or when people see that happening. That's going to be the second coming. But the point of this discourse to them is, you know what? It's not going to happen right now, guys. He's telling the disciples this. And you have to understand that if we're going to go through this in the next couple of weeks together in Matthew 24 and 25. He's telling them their thinking is off. They had most of it right, but he wants them to understand that this coming that he's talking about in verse 3 uses the word... Per- Perusia there, and it really means to be in full presence of. That's that's how they're using it. When is this coming, they're using this, going to take place? In other words, when are you as the Messiah really going to start doing what the Messiah should do? When are we going to experience the full presence of the Messiah? When is this going to happen? See, some people say, oh, well, he's talking to him about his second coming here. That's what they're asking. They're asking, well, when are you going to come back again? No, they're not asking that. They don't even know there is a second coming. They don't know there's a church age. They don't know anything about that. 
See, they're thinking it's all happening right now in real time. And so they're not asking him, oh, when are you going to come back? Because we know you're going to die. And you're... They didn't understand all that. They had no idea about that. Even though he told them he was going to die, they, it went right over their heads because it didn't fit into their eschatology. So at this point in time, they're saying, well, when are you going to establish this kingdom? When, is, when are we going to experience the full presence of you as the Messiah, Jesus? Conveys a permanent, full presence. And then he says to them, or they ask him, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming. And then they say, and the close of this age, the end of the age. They really thought that this was going to end right now. That, 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 that phrase is also used over in Matthew 28, verse 20, when Jesus comes and has authority and go out and make disciples. Lo, I'm with you always, remember? Even until the end of the age. Well, that means the full, the final end. I'm going to be with you until that point. But there's another place he uses these, this end of the age. And we've already been through it, but turn back in chapter 13, just quickly, verse 39. Chapter 13, verse 39. Remember when we went through this, the parable of the wheat and the tares. In the middle of that verse, it says, the harvest is the end of the age. Is the close of the age. Verse 39. The end of the age, then, is the time of God's harvest. Jesus says, basically, the reapers are the angels, the tares are, are gathered, they're burned, they're cast into the fire, and so it is going to be at the end of the age. And then it's used again in that parable. Verse 42, it says, They were cast them into the furnace of fire, where there was wailing and gnashing of teeth. When all this happens, it takes the wheat, the righteous, and they're shining forth in the kingdom of the Father, but the others are cast into hell. When is this going to happen? Verse 49, it says, So it shall be at the end of the age. It's the end. It it, it means the conclusion. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is the ultimate kind of of question. Now go back to, to Matthew 24. They're asking him these questions about these final things, these ultimate things. When is the Messiah coming in full presence and glory? That's what we're asking you. When's it going to happen? But he doesn't start answering that question until verse 4 and onward. So he's not including this destruction of the temple in his little answer something separate see they put it all together and jesus saying no you got it wrong two different things he says nothing about the destruction of jerusalem from uh, chapter four or or chapter 24 verse four onward he doesn't say anything about it why because he's talking about a second coming they don't understand that but that's what he's telling them he's trying to tell them he's trying to focus them and say look you got these events 
together in your mind. And so he goes on a discourse and he begins to unfold for them. Let me tell you how you can show, I'm going to show you what you'll see at my second coming. Signs of his second coming. I'm going to show you what's going to happen at the end of the age. The end is time as we know it. And that's the theme of this, this whole couple chapters. That's what he's trying to get across to them. And so he takes them from this historical moment right here, present time, and he, he's trying to throw them down till the end in time. Did they get it? No. Frankly, they didn't. Even after the resurrection, they're still, they're still asking him. Acts 1, you know, is this the time? Is this when everything's going to happen? They didn't get it. They didn't understand that part of the future things, teaching that Jesus was teaching them. But that, that question that they ask, when is the Messiah coming in full presence and glory? That's the question that we're going to be looking at next week, and that's when he begins to answer it in verse 4 and forward. And if you don't have that right, if you don't have that foundation going in here, then you're going to be putting everything together too. And we kind of look at it as the disciples looked at it, and we can kind of understand why they had these questions. Because they thought, boy, everything was going to happen right now, present time. You know, the best answer, well, when is he going to return? When is Christ coming back? I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? The one thing I do know, he is. Because he said he will. And just like he predicted and prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, you go in any history book and you can read that in its full glory and they'll tell you all sorts of things about what happened in 70 AD. Because it physically happened. And even when Jesus said it, they thought, this is unreal, this temple's not going to come down, there's no way this ever happened. And yet it did. That should speak something to the, your heart of the, the veracity of Christ and who he is and the truthfulness with which he speaks. So when Jesus says over here in another area, I am the truth, the way, the life, no man, I don't care who you are, comes to me, comes to the Father except through me, it might carry a little more weight because his words, beloved, are truth. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I know that this would be an interesting time the next couple weeks as we get into this section of Scripture. It's rather overwhelming, to be honest, but, but Lord, I know that you in your grace, will give us understanding. Father, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be one of the disciples. They're on Mount of Olives with Jesus, and he's telling them that all these temple stones are going to be cast down. And they're probably thinking, ah, whatever, I don't know when this is going to happen. How is this going to happen? God, sometimes for you to get the glory, we really need to be put in a place that seems impossible to us. A place that we don't see an exit. We don't even have an exit strategy. We don't know how to get out of the things that we've gotten ourselves into. One of those things is our own sin. The Bible says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin has to be paid for. 
The Bible speaks of an eternity, a heaven, a hell. It's not a party. Hell is a place of darkness, of torment, the utter absence of the presence of God. It's not a place where you party with your friends. It's a place where you ponder the truths that you heard about the Christ, the one who was willing to pay for your sin, but you rejected the offer, thinking maybe you could work things out on your own. Don't make that mistake. Cry out to God this morning. Ask him, Lord, give me wisdom in this area. I mean, a lot of these things make sense. A lot of these things... I think I need to address in my own life. Lord, give me the wisdom to understand the words that I'm hearing this morning. Quicken my heart to believe in this Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, the one who can save me from my sin. That's a prayer that, that, that God will honor when you come when it comes from a humble heart, when it comes from a heart of desperate cry, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. For us believers here this morning, I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that even as the disciples pondered in their unbelief some of these things, sometimes we're faced with issues in our own life that cause us to be in that same place, to cause us to disbelieve you to need a refresher course on the truths that Christ has spoken to our hearts. The truths that the New Testament speaks, not truths of condemnation. For the Word says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That we are sufficient as children of God through the Spirit and through the Word as we live for Him on a day-to-day basis. Is it easy? No, it's not. Do we fail? Yes, we do. But praise God for His forgiveness and His grace. That's what allows us to keep going. Not because of us, but because of Him. Help us to remind ourselves of that. Father, we just thank You for our time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.